you're a smart scientific man. You can't possibly believe of uh, spirit activity in our world today, can you? I don't see too much of that uh, here in the United States or in Canada where I was raised, although I did have some experiences in one part of Pasadena, California, where there was a street where on both sides there were witchcraft coffins. And, uh, but where I really saw evidence of that is when I was invited to speak to scientists in the Soviet Union, uh, a time when the communists were in control of the country. And uh, interestingly, I was invited by the Soviet government to come, but on the condition that I only share my Christian faith uh, with PhD-level scientists. They said, if we catch you sharing your Christian faith with anyone else, will immediately deport you, you'll never be invited back. And I said, well, why are you having me come? They said, well, these are scientists that travel internationally to meetings. And so, basically, they brought me in to appease them. But one thing I discovered when I began to speak to these audiences of uh, scientists is that uh, many of them were obviously demon-possessed. And I discovered why. That was a time when the Soviet Union was sponsoring research in occult physics. So a lot of the physicists at their institutes of uh, learning uh, were actually heavily involved in the occult, trying to develop occult weapons they could use against the West. And consequently, I remember talking to this one audience where about a quarter of the physicists there uh, uh, were, were demon-possessed. That was obvious. I'd walk into the room, they immediately start screaming and yelling at the top of their lungs, uh, you know, in obvious fear of the fact that I was even in the room. Uh, some of them would curl up in the fetal position, and uh, they would yell out these incredible charges against Jesus, accusing him of incredible immoral uh, crimes. And, uh, you know, I've been around longshoremen in the U.S. Uh, who use the Lord's name in vain, but they stopped short of accusing Jesus of gross moral imbehavior. Uh, and, and also I recognized, I said, okay, this happened to me once. The next time I brought a cohort with me who was also invited. And I said, look, I just want you to sit at the back and you pray that the demons will be silent. And uh, that happened. I gave this talk and these demon-possessed people were utterly silent. And what I discovered is the other Soviet scientists there, they all believed in demons. They saw it literally every day. Uh, but they were stunned that the demons were quiet. And uh, so that got their attention because they had never seen the demons be quiet before. And so I got to share with them the reason why the demons were quiet. And so probably of all the speaking I've done internationally, it was speaking to scientists in the Soviet Union where I saw the greatest response of uh, those scientists to receiving Jesus Christ as Creator, Lord, and Savior. I mean, there was one audience of several hundred uh, where you know, we, I gave a personal invitation and said, if this day you've committed your life to Jesus Christ for the first time, please write your name on a piece of paper and put it up on the desk here. And I didn't realize that there was a paper shortage in the Soviet Union at that time, because a near riot broke out where these scientists were scrounging around for pieces of paper 
And when they'd find one, they'd rip it into tiny little pieces so each of them could write their name on it and put it on the desk at the front. Uh, easily, uh, more than 90% of the uh, physicists uh, that day uh, gave their life to Jesus Christ. We had a mountain of these tiny shards of paper on the desk up front. And as they walked out, uh, there were two men at the back handing them books. So I went to the back there and said, uh, what are you giving them? And they said, we're giving them Russian Gideon Bibles. Uh, they were the first Russian Gideon Bibles to get into Russia. And I said, and then he also shared with me, do you remember doing a fundraiser for Russian Gideon Bibles in Santa Barbara two years ago? And I said, yeah, I do. Uh, that's where I kind of gave my testimony and gave an appeal to the people there to donate uh, for publishing these Russian Gideon Bibles. They said, these are those Bibles that were raised that night at that fundraiser. So, you know, that was just wonderful experience for me to just see all these little pieces fitting together. That was both an, um, an unholy and a divine encounter at the same time. How does an atheist astrophysicist come to faith? What is that process? How was it for you? Well, I wasn't raised in a, in a believing home, but it was a home where my parents stressed moral upbringing, and uh, they didn't believe in God or an eternal life. Uh, but they encouraged my studies. Uh, my parents say that I was born a scientist. I was doing experiments since I was two years of age. And uh, also, uh, I now know that I'm on the autistic spectrum. So I was actually reading before I was engaging in any kind of significant conversation. And at age seven, our school, public school, took us on a field trip uh, to the Vancouver Public Library, which at that time had three million volumes. And uh, that day I went home with five books on astronomy and physics. And every Saturday I would go and uh, read four or five more. And so uh, my parents say I was born an astronomer, although I really didn't commit to that career until I was eight years of age. Uh, but every year I would study a different subdiscipline of science. And at age 16, I studied cosmology. That's the science of the origin and history of the universe. And there was a major debate at that time. Is it a steady state universe? Is it an oscillating universe? A hesitating universe? Or a big bang universe? Uh, but at that time I realized the observational evidence was heavily favoring the big bang theory. And so if it's big bang, the universe has a beginning. If there's a beginning, there must be a cosmic beginner. So at age 17, I began to search for the cosmic beginner. But I didn't really know how to undergo that search. So the first place I looked was in the books of Immanuel Kant, because he's recognized as the father of cosmology, read his critique of pure reason, and uh, found that there are a lot of inconsistencies in his arguments about the universe and the possibility of God's existence and involvement in the universe. I went on and read some of Rene Descartes' works, and uh, the public school I attended was filled with international students, and so they encouraged me to look at Buddhism and Hinduism, Islam, Zoroastrianism, a lot of different isms. And so I began to go through those isms, and I said, you know, most of these religions are based on some kind of holy book, 
uh, or scripture. So I said, I'm going to read the original sources, not just the commentaries. So I began with the Hindu Vedas and realized they had the wrong concepts of the universe. I was rather surprised to discover that's the origin of the oscillating universe theory. But I knew enough about astronomy to realize that the universe had way too much entropy to permit a possible rebound Phoenix-style uh, oscillation of the universe. So I said, I don't think Hinduism is it. I looked at Buddhism and discovered that they basically borrowed the cosmology of Hinduism. And I looked at Islam and uh, realized that they have different texts on creation, but they uh, were inconsistent with one another and inconsistent with what I knew to be true about the universe. So I spent about uh, several months going through these different books and uh, for some reason I left the Bible to the very end. I knew enough about the religions of the world to realize that would be the biggest challenge. Uh, so I left that to the end, uh, but realized, hey, in all these other different holy books, I was able to find abundant provable errors and contradictions. So then I began to look at the Bible. And when I tell people I didn't have any contact with Christians uh, until uh, much after I became one, it's uh, not quite accurate. I mean, I did see two Christians from 30 feet away when I was 11 years of age. They were two businessmen that came into our public school, put two boxes on our teacher's desk, and exited without saying a single word. But in those boxes were Gideon Bibles. So from age 11 onward, I had a Gideon Bible, but I didn't pick it up until I was 17. And when I did pick it up and began to go through it, I said, this book is radically different from all these other uh, so-called holy books. Uh, much more detailed and specific, and actually addresses geography, history, and science. And unlike these other holy books, it actually commanded objective testing. Everything is to be tested. Uh, you see it in the book of Thessalonians. Test everything, hold fast to that which proves to be good and true. So I said, okay, I'm going to do this. And I've been taught the scientific method uh, in every year of my public education. Uh, so I was very fluent in the scientific method. Applied that uh, to the creation text in the Bible. And what really surprised me is even the first creation text, Genesis chapter 1, rigorously follows the scientific method. Now, I have to admit I was naive. Uh, I didn't know where the scientific method came from. It was years later when I read the writings of the Scottish theologian Thomas Torrance, I realized that comes from the, uh, the Bible and comes from Reformation theology. Uh, but following that uh, scientific method, I realized all of the Bible's creation texts got everything correctly described and the correct chronological sequence. So I says, okay, this book has a possibility of actually being a revelation from the one that created the universe. So I spent almost two years spending an hour or two a day studying the Bible, looking for provable scientific or historical error or some provable contradiction. Now, at the end of that study period, there were many passages I didn't understand, uh, but I was unable to find a single provable error of contradictions. And I found hundreds of places where the Bible predicted future historical events 
and future scientific discoveries. And I recognize that's beyond human capability. So this message must really be inspired by the one that created the universe. So it was at age 19, I signed my name in the back of this Gideon Bible, committing my life to Jesus Christ. Uh, but I also realized that commitment meant I had to begin to share my Christian faith uh, with my fellow students and professors. And uh, so I began to do that after I signed my name in the back of that Gideon Bible. And, uh, you know, I had a lot of fear about sharing my faith because I knew just how um, opposed my fellow students and professors would be to what I had discovered. Uh, so I was expecting a lot of opposition, a lot of abuse and persecution, but I was pleasantly surprised uh, just how open my fellow students and professors were to a rational scientific approach to faith. What moved you from a, uh, I mean, a deist could come to the conclusions you did, right? That there's must be a God and come to the scientific conclusions you did. But what takes that that step further, that there's a personal, the, that God is a personal being that you could have that relationship right, with? Right, right. Good question, because just looking at the universe itself, there's a beginning, there's a beginning to space and time. That's something we now can prove through space-time theorems. It proves that there must be an agent beyond space and time that brought the universe into existence. That's deism. What moved me from deism to theism is looking at this Gideon Bible and realizing this is a God that's involved not in just creating the universe and then taking a back seat and watching it all unfold. This is a God that's involved in his creation. And you know, I came to that conclusion just realizing how in the Bible it predicted future historical events accurately, specifically, and hundreds of times, and also did that uh, with uh, future scientific discoveries we humans have made, which showed me this is a God that's involved after the beginning of the universe. This is a God who has a deep interest and the purpose and destiny of human beings. And so that was theism. Um, and then, you know, Christianity is really based on this idea that the creator of the universe himself came to planet Earth and lived a human life amongst all of us. And in that human life, demonstrated moral perfection, something no other human is capable of doing. And yet in that moral perfection, uh, he willingly uh, was offering to trade his moral perfection for our moral imperfection. You know, I'm referring to the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And what impressed me in reading the Gospels is there are occasions when he would tell an audience, who of you can accuse me of any sin or fault? And in the audience was his mother and his four brothers. Right. And it's like, you're not going to fool your mom. So the fact that he was able to make that declaration and had no objection from the audience, either the religious leaders that were opposed to his message or his personal family, said, yeah, this... And, you know, as you read the life of Jesus, uh, he really did demonstrate a life of moral perfection. And then he performed miracles, and especially when I read the Gospel of John. Uh, the Gospel of John talks about miracles uh, that no prophet, no human prophet can perform, miracles that only God is capable of performing.
And so it was reading the Gospels, uh, reading the Sermon on the Mount, seeing that moral perfection, and then what Jesus did for all of humanity, where he basically said, I'll take upon myself uh, the, uh, the payment of all the offenses that you've made in your entire life. And I said, that's an offer that's too good to turn down. So it says, yeah, it just makes rational sense to trade my moral imperfection for his moral perfection. But one thing that caused me to hesitate is realize it's not just asking God to forgive you of all of your sins and offenses against him and other human beings. It's actually making him the master of your life. But I realize, hey, he's God, he's morally perfect, he knows me better than I know myself, it only makes rational sense to put him in charge of my life. Uh, but I do admit I had a lot of fear. If I do that, I'm going to have to start sharing my faith, and I'm going to face a lot of uh, objections and persecution. Uh, but what I didn't really realize until I made that commitment, God is committed to assist us and what he commands us to do. And I discovered that, hey, if I go into an auditorium of, say, 700 angry atheist scientists, uh, I don't go in there alone. God is with me, and he will assist me. And it took me a few weeks to understand that principle, uh, but it's a principle I've been living by ever since. How about lastly, last time we just talked, you gave a brief overview at the unlikely odds that there would be life on planet Earth. You think you could run through that? Uh, So many people enjoyed that. I'd like to hear that again. Right. Well, I've actually uh, written this book. It just got released a few days ago, Designed to the Core, where I give an update on that. And uh, what really surprised me going through the scientific literature, in the past three years, more discoveries have been made that demonstrate extraordinary fine-tuning of the universe, our galaxy cluster, our galaxy, our local spiral arm in the galaxy, the local bubble, the local fluff, uh, our star, uh, the system of planets that accompany our star, our moon and the Earth. Basically what I was able to document in this book designed to the core is that at every possible cosmic size scale you choose to look, you'll find overwhelming evidence that, say, the cosmic web has been supernaturally designed to make possible existence of human beings here on planet Earth at this time. Probably the most dramatic example is a chapter I wrote here on the moon, where I make the point that the moon formed as a result of the proto-Earth and another rocky planet, Theia, uh, colliding with one another, and in the merging event, we wind up with a bigger Earth, a denser Earth, super enriched with heavy elements, and the debris cloud around the Earth coalesces and makes the Moon. Uh, But both the Earth and the Moon had an early hot origin, and both of them got enriched uh, with iron and nickel and cobalt. Those are ferrous metals. And because of their hot origin, both bodies had a hot liquid core of iron, nickel, and cobalt. And they were close enough together early in the history of the solar system that the tidal forces of the moon circulated that liquid iron in the Earth's core 
and likewise the tidal forces of the Earth exerted in the Moon circulated the liquid iron core in the Moon. And that gave a dynamo for both bodies. And so both bodies had a powerful magnetosphere around them, but because of how close they were together at that time, the magnetospheres coupled. And uh, a research paper that I cite in this book uh, documents that if it wasn't for that coupled powerful magnetosphere, the particle radiation from the early sun would have sputtered away all of Earth's water and all of Earth's atmosphere, and there would have been no possibility for life of any kind. And they concluded their paper by saying, this is a habitability requirement. But they dropped it right there. And uh, what I write in Design to the Core, this is the most extraordinary habitability requirement ever discovered by astronomers. The only way you're going to have life on a planet is if you have two planets, rocky planets, merging together uh, where you get a bigger planet that's super endowed with uranium and thorium and iron, nickel, and cobalt, and you wind up getting a moon, and you need the moon to be the same mass and size and density that our moon is, and Earth to be the same size, mass, and density the Earth is, and beginning uh, just a few Earth diameters apart from one another where the moon is spiraling away. Uh, because it's also crucial uh, that as the moon spirals away, it slows down our rotation rate. Because the initial Earth had a rotation rate of about two hours a day. And for advanced light, you need 24 hours. Uh, so, I mean, if you're a dog or a cat, you can get by with 23 hours or 25 hours. But for global human civilization, you need 24 uh, hours. And so, uh, unless we can find another planet exactly like the Earth, exactly like the Moon, where the Earth-Moon system has exactly the same history that the Earth-Moon system has, uh, there's no possibility. Is there a life. number on that, a percentage uh, of likelihood? Well, uh, it's essentially yeah. zero. Uh, in fact, I tell the story in this book of how a number of scientists which were involved in this, this, uh, you know, doing research on the origin of the moon, came to the conclusion that the origin of the moon required extraordinary fine-tuning. So much fine-tuning that it had significant philosophical consequences. And so I cite an, uh, a special issue, the British journal Nature, where about six of these origin of life researchers said, we have to redo our models. We got to get this design factor down, because otherwise we've got these supernatural consequences. And so they redid all their models, but the new models actually had more design in it than the old models. And it was Tim Elliott who commented in the British journal Nature, this is causing us philosophical disquiet. Yeah, I bet. Uh, but that was before they discovered this uh, uh, coupled magnetosphere. Right. And so the philosophical disquiet today is far, far greater than it was in 2014 I mean, this, when these models The were statistical all number was still zero before that discovery, basically, right? It was, but now it's been driven down Less to zero. even closer to zero. <laughs> I mean, uh, what I've shown in uh, several of my books is that if you're going to argue that the Earth-Moon system has all of its features 
without supernatural divine intervention, the probability of that happening naturalistically is much less than one chance in 10 to the 1500th power. That's 1500 yeah. zeros between the decimal point and the one, and it's roughly equivalent to someone here in the state of California where I live winning the California lottery uh, 200 consecutive times uh, where they buy just one ticket each time, uh, which a mathematician friend of mine said is indistinguishable from the probability of winning the California lottery 200 consecutive times where you don't buy any tickets wow. at all. Yeah, that's so, nice. Yeah. Every time I talk to you, uh, there, there's got to be. Every time I talk to you, I have to recoup. I have to let my brain uh, un untangle itself. Well, that's just one chapter of the book, Design of the Core, <laughs> and then, you know, late people have read the book. Said every chapter is right. a mind blower. I mean, most late people haven't even thought about this cosmic web of super galaxy clusters being supernaturally designed so that we humans can I see exist. it like you need warm-up like, chapters you know loosen the brain up a little bit before you you get to those you'll pull you'll pull a brain well, muscle I, I, yeah and you know I've got in my office here about 50 books written by astronomers on what's called the anthropic principle and uh, all but two of them are not all but two of them are unbelievers but they all agree when we look at the universe as a whole we see overwhelming evidence that has been designed uh, to make life possible, and in particular, human life possible. But they stop at the level of the universe. What I tried to do in this book is say, you know, these non-believing astronomers are comfortable with a God that designs the universe as a whole, because that means they can keep this God at an arm's length. But what we see is it's not just the universe as a whole that's supernaturally designed. The super galaxy cluster we're in is designed. It's unique. There are tens of thousands of super galaxy clusters. We're living in the only one that has these amazing design features that make our existence possible. And as you go from the very largest size scales all the way down to the smallest size scales, you see that argument holds all the way down. I mean, one thing that makes it difficult for me to watch the Star Wars movies, they all begin with a galaxy far, far away. Well, we astronomers have looked at galaxies far, far away. None of them are candidates. Right. Only our galaxy. And our galaxy has over 200 features that must be fine-tuned to make our existence possible. It's a galaxy like no other. But I could make that argument about our star, our planet, our planetary system. Uh, the local bubble in our galaxy in which we exist, uh, looking at the supermassive black hole uh, in the center of our galaxy, no matter what size scale you look at, you get this overwhelming sense. There's a personal creator behind it all uh, that is fine-tuning and designing everything so that we humans can exist at this one place at one time in the universe. That's the other thing that blows me away. If we were here any earlier or any later, we couldn't possibly exist. We're here at the only time in cosmic history in which our existence is possible, and we're living at the only location in the universe where existence is possible. Which tells me the creator of the universe must have a profound purpose and destiny for us human beings. I don't know.